Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Victor Picard, professor of media policy at the University of Pennsylvania, who examines revelations in the Dominion Fox News lawsuit and consequences for a media outlet that regularly broadcasts lies that provoke political violence. Tracy Carluccio, Deputy Director of the Delaware River Keeper Network, who talks about the need to implement new freight train safety standards to prevent future toxic train derailments. And Sarah Rollins of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, who explains how scrapping the cap on wealthy earners' Social Security contributions would protect and expand the popular Social Safety Net program. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Tunisia's authoritarian president, Kai Said, has unleashed a wave of attacks targeting black African migrants. In a February 21 speech at the nation's National Security Council, Said, in power since 2019, declared undocumented migrants from sub-Saharan Africa are arriving with all the violence, crime, and unacceptable behavior that entails. Foreign Policy magazine reports that Said's rhetoric incited violence against African migrants, which included attacks with machetes, knives, arson, and employers withholding wages. A far-right Tunisian National Party has led a campaign calling for the expulsion of sub-Saharan African immigrants, framing immigration to Tunisia from other African regions as being part of an effort to initiate demographic change in the country, an idea that has parallels with the European far-right's Great Replacement conspiracy theory. That theory posits that immigration from Africa and Asia is aimed at replacing white people in Europe and America. Said, who dismissed Parliament, enacted a new constitution and is now ruling by decree, has arrested leading members of opposition parties and journalists. Tunisia's most powerful labor union rallied in the capital on March 4th in what appeared to be the biggest protest yet against President Said. With Tunisia's economy in crisis, state finances on the brink of bankruptcy and shortages of key goods, the potential for public anger may grow. Russia's invasion of Ukraine a year ago raised fears that Europe would abandon its commitments to combat climate change, especially in pledges to phase out the use of coal. Activists in Germany led protests after the center-left government permitted the mining of lignite, the dirtiest form of coal. By making coal, gas, and oil scarcer and more expensive, prices remain well above long-run averages, despite recent decreases. The war in Ukraine has given renewable power, which is mostly generated domestically, a significant strategic and economic edge. According to The Economist magazine, the war in Ukraine may have sped up a global transition to green energy by 5 to 10 years. Worldwide investment in solar and wind power grew by nearly 25% in 2022, outstripping the investment in fossil fuels. 
clean energy will also get a boost from Joe Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, which allocated $370 billion in subsidies for green technology. In addition, the European Commission is expected to invest $270 billion in clean tech companies. Long before the Norfolk Southern train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, powerful freight railroad companies put pressure on workers to ignore train safety issues. A leaked audio recording obtained by the Guardian newspaper reveals a manager for Union Pacific Railway urging a carman, now retired, to stop reporting rail cars for broken wheel bearings. The manager claimed it was all right to skip inspections. According to a preliminary report released by the National Transportation Safety Board, the Ohio derailment was caused by a wheel-bearing failure. At the behest of the railroad industry, freight train brake safety rules were rolled back under the Trump administration, as were hazardous material regulations. Edward Whitkind, past president of the Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO, observed, For a generation, the railroad industry has blocked all attempts to pass new safety regulations. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Through the Dominion Voting Technology Company's $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit, we now have solid evidence of what much of the nation has known for decades, that the channel's commentators regularly lie to their audience. With sworn testimony and text message communication between host Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, and owner Rupert Murdoch, it's clear that Fox was fulfilling its role as a propaganda organ of the Republican Party where facts and truth were irrelevant to the company's priorities, of making big profits and disseminating lies. In addition to broadcasting blatant lies about Donald Trump's false claim of a stolen election, the Dominion lawsuit has also revealed that Fox provided Trump's son-in-law and senior advisor Jared Kushner with confidential information about then-presidential candidate Joe Biden's political advertising and debate strategy. Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's decision to release 44,000 hours of January 6 Capitol surveillance video to Fox's Tucker Carlson resulted in his airing cherry-picked video clips on March 6, where he argued the January 6 Capitol attack, where five people died, hundreds were injured, and nearly a thousand rioters were charged with crimes, was not a violent insurrection at all, but rather Trump supporters benignly sightseeing. Your reporter spoke with Victor Picard, professor of media policy and political economy and co-director at the Media Inequality and Change Center at the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg School for Communication. Here, Professor Picard discusses the Dominion lawsuit against Fox and the consequences for a media outlet that regularly weaponizes extremist propaganda that provokes political violence. Anyone who's paid any attention whatsoever to how Fox News operates. This doesn't come as a complete surprise, but at the same time, rarely 
has Fox's anti-democratic behavior and their deep cynicism towards their audience and towards democracy writ large, has it ever been cast into such stark relief? It's such overwhelming, such damning evidence that it really is noteworthy. It's something that I think, you know, we all should be reflecting on as a society. And just, you know, there are two levels to the to the outrage, you might say. The first one, as you noted, is that these messages that were that came out through discovery in this lawsuit basically show that not only the major commentators at Fox News like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity, but even Rupert Murdoch himself knew all along that the whole election denialism was a farce, right? So it shows that they knew that this was not true to begin with. But then the second layer of the outrage is that they then tried to suppress the truth. They did not want their audience to know, or rather they didn't want it to seem like they weren't as loyal to Trump as some of the uh, other outlets, um, in particular Newsmax. They were very concerned about losing their audience to Newsmax as well as One America News Network. And so this just really drives home how dangerous a propagandistic source is Fox so-called, you know, we always want to put into scare quotes, the, the news part. Um, this is it's really something that we as a society should be very concerned about. Thank you for that, Victor. Uh, I wondered if you talk briefly about the 1964 Supreme Court decision in the case called New York Times versus Sullivan that impacts what the court is likely to do in this defamation lawsuit against Fox. Yeah, well, so I want to say up front, I'm not a legal expert, so I don't want to get too much into the weeds on this. But generally speaking, since that court decision and then other decisions and other laws that have been put into effect, we give a lot of deference towards uh, news organizations. Some people would also argue it's, it's protected by First Amendment protections, you know, allowing them to even in some cases air what's known to be false news or, or misinformation, but as long as they're not out like overtly promoting misinformation. And so it, historically, it's been very difficult to win defamation lawsuits like the one that's being uh, put forth here by Dominion. However, legal experts that are looking closely at this think that this is a pretty, a pretty solid case, especially because of all these messages that were sort of being back-channeled about what Fox News was actually doing, and they were trying to suppress the truth. They were clearly trying to promote some of these falsehoods, some of this misinformation about voting, about you know the very uh, mechanics of our democracy. So I think they've got a, a winning argument here, at least potentially. They could win this. Broadcasting lies to its audience in this case, and in many cases across the years at Fox News, seemed designed to incite violence. And I wonder, from your perspective, beyond the Dominion defamation lawsuit, what can be done to either penalize Fox News or protect democracy from the poison that this Republican propaganda outlet spreads on a daily basis? I think there are plenty of examples of how people whose sole information source is Fox News, some of those folks are unstable. Uh, they're prone to violence. And we saw on January 6, 2021, an example of how Fox News contributes to attacks on democracy itself. Beyond this lawsuit, what else can we do? 
Yeah, excellent question. We should always be wondering what's to be done. And I think it's important that we move beyond the critique, but we have to recognize that these are systemic problems, that there are incentives in place to make, to sort of rationalize and justify this behavior. We have to change the system. It should be a multi-front assault uh, in trying to um, rein in Fox News. And, you know, certainly we need to be looking at law and policy to try to rein them in. But I think even more importantly, we need to be thinking about creating public alternatives um, and trying to create. And I'm not just talking about NPR and PBS, but really trying to imagine building out public media alternatives that aren't driven by profit imperatives, but instead are doing what we all learn in school that news organizations are supposed to do, which is to protect and advance democracy. But we need to really try to build out these public alternatives. And, you know, another uh, attack that sometimes comes up in these discussions is advertising boycotts, which I think is something we always should be trying to do, put pressure on not just the journalists and the news organizations, but the advertisers who fund them. But in many cases, such as with Tucker Carlson, that's really not going to put a dent into his business model. A lot of the money that Fox is getting from these programs is actually through carriage fees, basically the subscription fees. And so these advertiser boycotts, I'm afraid, have have limited uh, utility. But certainly we also have to just create our our own alternative media and support programs like yours, Scott. This needs to be part of of an alternative media ecosystem. That was Victor Picard, professor of media policy and political economy at the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg School for Communication. Learn more about the lawsuits revealing Fox News lies by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The February 3rd derailment of a Norfolk and Southern freight train on the Ohio-Pennsylvania border that released vinyl chloride and other toxic chemicals has brought to light the dangerous cargoes that are moved daily all around the country and around the world. A second Norfolk Southern freight train derailment near Springfield, Ohio on March 4th that fortunately wasn't carrying toxic materials underscores the ongoing hazard posed by these trains. U.S. freight trains often use old, unsafe equipment with little or no notification to residents in neighborhoods through which these dangerous bomb trains travel. Those residents are most often living in what are called environmental justice communities with high concentrations of low-income and people of color who have minimal political power and little or no information about the toxic materials passing through their neighborhoods. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Tracy Carluccio, Deputy Director of the Delaware Riverkeeper Network, based in Pennsylvania. Here she talks about the threat posed by toxic train cargo to public safety, health, the environment, the economy, and new policies that are urgently needed to minimize these hazards. The problem that we have uh, here in the United States and uh, in many foreign nations as well is that we insist on moving fossil fuels and dangerous hazardous products all around different states. And the goal is to get it from where it's manufactured or mined to an end use. And one of the big problems that we have with the way that we are transporting these materials is that they're not recognized as dangerous as they are. And we believe that's intentional 
The reason that there aren't good regulations in place that govern many of these hazardous materials, the fact that pipelines or highways or railways, ships, barges, transport hazardous materials is because the public is basically kept out of the information about what is really going on, what is going through their backyards, uh, what is the potential for uh, harm or disaster or even catastrophe like we saw in Ohio if these materials were to go off the rails or have an accident on a highway or if a pipeline were to become destabilized and explode. When these catastrophes do occur, it's a grim reminder that we face this danger every single day. It's just usually out of sight and therefore out of mind. And that's not good. It's not good for us as those who might be in the pathway of harm. It's not good for our economy because it destroys infrastructure as well as people. It destroys natural resources. And then on top of all of that, environmentally and in terms of human health, the impacts never go away. As long as we are agreeing uh, as a nation and as a public and as government regulatory agencies that we're going to allow the extraction in the first place and then the transport of that extracted material, then we are exposing unacceptable, really intolerable threats onto our communities. So we really need to start at the origin. We need to stop fracking and we need to replace uh, resources that are extracted from the ground through these very uh, destructive processes and replace them with renewables. We need to replace them with uh, truly clean energy, such as wind and solar, and not continue to carry out this extractive process that then necessarily results in transportation and exposing more communities to the, the dangers of the product itself. You know, moving to clean, green energy sounds good, but that's not going to happen overnight. So do you have an absolutist position that there just should be none of this, any of this being transported? Or what do you say in the meantime? Like, how do you make it safer or make people more aware of what's at least what's happening? In the meantime, there are regulations that were proposed during the Obama administration, making it more safe to move many of these hazardous materials by rail. Crude oil um, was one of the issues that had really risen to the top because of all the fracking uh, activity that had boosted the crude oil production and transport. It also was because there was a vinyl chloride, same as in Ohio, a vinyl chloride chemical derailment in New Jersey that harmed a lot of people, and there's still permanent harm from that. And they know because of accidents up to 1,500 derailments a year, our infrastructure for rail is old. We need new regulations that require stronger rail cars, that require pneumatic brakes rather than the old-fashioned air brakes that we're still using and yet were designed during the Civil War to when these things were first used. It's absolutely outrageous that our government has not taken the action that the Obama administration began to tighten up and make safer the transport of hazardous materials. However, they were watered down because of uh, lobbying by the industry, particularly Norfolk Southern and other rail companies uh, who stomp around and, and influence our Congress people and our, and our government. 
to do what they want rather than what protects the people. They were finally in a watered down state adopted. And then under the Trump administration, uh, they were actually removed. So now the challenge is to the, our current government, the Biden administration and the Department of Transportation to start immediately that process. One other really important thing, I think, Melinda, is that there has been a real movement on the part of unions that represent train workers and also fire associations to try to get these safety standards in place and also to make sure that there are the proper worker protections in place. That was Tracy Carluccio, Deputy Director of the Delaware Riverkeeper Network. Learn more about efforts to implement new safety standards and prevent dangerous freight train derailments by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. For many decades, the Republican Party has sought to cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid benefits, privatize these programs, or end them altogether. During President Biden's February 7th State of the Union address, he called out recent GOP plans to sunset or make cuts to these popular programs in upcoming debt limit and budget negotiations. When Republicans shouted liar and jeered him, the president said he took that as a sign that cuts to the nation's social safety net programs would be off the table. But due to the aging of the U.S. population and declining birth rates, the Social Security Trust Fund will face a shortfall as soon as 2035, when the system will only have enough funds to pay out 80% of scheduled benefits. But simple changes to federal tax policy could easily fix the shortfall problem and strengthen Social Security for decades to come. Currently, only the first $160,000 in earnings are subject to Social Security payroll taxes, meaning that somebody making $10 million in a year is contributing the same amount into Social Security as somebody making $160,000. Legislative proposals have been introduced to raise the cap so that wages above $250,000 or $400,000 would be subject to the payroll tax, along with wealthy earners' non-salary income. Your reporter spoke with Sarah Rawlins, program associate with the Center for Economic and Policy Research, who explains how scrapping the cap would safeguard and expand Social Security for the future. There is a shortfall in the Social Security Trust Fund, which I think absolutely everyone knows at this point because it's heavily talked about whenever Social Security comes up. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize, though, that the shortfall that we're talking about, while it's certainly not ideal because the program is really valuable, is not like the world-ending cliff that a lot of people see it to be. Right now, we would be looking at reducing benefits to maybe like 70 or 80 percent of what they are now starting in 2035. So while that's definitely not good, it's also not a catastrophe. Social Security will still be there like when I retire. Right. But nobody wants to see a, a decrease of uh, 15 or 20 percent of the benefits that people have contributed over the years. Right. So it is a big issue, but it's good to put it in perspective as you did. 
So while Republicans have proposed both increases in the eligibility age to receive Social Security, as well as benefit cuts, there is one very simple uh, adjustment that can be made to Social Security payments that would fix the system for decades to come. And I wondered if you'd tell us more about uh, what's uh, for shorthand called scrapping the cap. Yeah, absolutely. So I just wrote a piece about this last week. Um, so what a lot of people don't realize is that Social Security uh, contributions to the trust fund are actually capped at the first $160,200 that someone makes in just wage income. Um, so for most people, that has no effect because 94% of the population makes under $160,000 a year. But for the 6% of the population who make more than that, as soon as they earn over that cap, um, they no longer pay Social Security taxes out of their paycheck. Uh, so if you make a million dollars, you stopped paying Social Security on February 28th, um, and for the rest of the year, you wouldn't pay into that program. That doesn't apply to most people. And, you know, when we do have very pervasive conversations around Social Security, I think every year, really, where it comes up that the program has a shortfall, it's pretty disappointing to leave it underfunded by uh, giving way to the wealthy instead of having them pay their fair share. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. And uh, it's pretty disappointing. So what is the status of the proposal now to change the cap? And, and maybe you could describe for our listeners, if that cap were lifted, how secure would Social Security be in the coming years? Yeah. So if that cap were lifted, all it would mean was that the 6% of people who don't pay into Social Security all year long would have to start. They'd pay 6.2% of their paycheck, just like every other American. Um, and the Congressional Research Service actually estimated that just scrapping the cap would eliminate 73% of the shortfall in the trust fund, um, which is not all of it, but 73% of a problem solved is quite a bit. Um, and there could be other small changes made to the program that could give it solvency in the long run very easily. For example, we're increasing the tax from 6.2% of a paycheck to 6.9% of the paycheck could keep the program solvent for the next 75 years. As someone who does a lot of research on Social Security issues and the problems the system faces and the solutions, how would you rate our corporate media system's coverage of this issue, whether it be the major newspapers or the TV networks? What kind of job have they done? I think a lot of people my age, you know, I'm like a millennial, um, think that Social Security won't be there for them when they retire. Like, it's very common to hear my peers joke like, oh, I'm never going to be able to retire. I'll have to work until I die. And I think that's really disappointing. And especially given what I said to you at the beginning of our talk here today about benefits being reduced maybe to 80 or 70 percent in 10 years, that's uh, or a little more than 10 years. But like, you know, that's still they're still going to be there. And I think it's disappointing that the coverage of this issue never talks about expansion and presents a scenario of already deceit instead of all the opportunities to make Social Security even stronger than it was when it was introduced 90 years ago. That was Sarah Rollins, Program Associate with the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Learn more about how simple federal policy changes could protect and expand the Social Security system for decades to come by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org.
listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on KMWV in Salem, Oregon, FRSC in Santa Cruz, California, KMXT in Kodiak, Alaska, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.